This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll talk about right-wing women. We've never forgotten that in 2016, exit polls showed that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. It's still a puzzling and frightening statistic. If you want to know where the political organizing of right-wing women in America began, take a look at Phyllis Schlafly and the fight she organized to block the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. She's the subject of a nine-part miniseries on the FX channel on Hulu. It's called Mrs. America, and it stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. Ella Taylor has been watching. She'll talk about that and some other films on women in politics. But first, we're still thinking about that first presidential debate on Tuesday night and what is to be done about the remaining two. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, in a normal election, the presidential debates provide the best chance for the person who's behind in the polls to win undecided voters, maybe even persuade a few of his opponent's supporters to switch sides. Trump entered this debate seven or eight points behind. That's farther behind at this point than any candidate since Bob Dole in 1996. Over the last four years, Trump has lost ground, especially among suburban women. So this was his biggest chance, maybe his last big chance to change the dynamic of the race. Do you think he did change the dynamic of the race? The short answer is no. Uh, I I, I think Trump came on uh, like Godzilla at a tea party. Uh, (laughs) You know, and and if if you if you think about as you suggested the swing, you know the the presumably the swing voters he needs to uh, win over. Uh, A lot of that are the white women whose support he had four years ago and whose support he does not have now, I, I think the, the whole effect of, of his performance, the belligerence, the rage, the divisiveness is, uh, is certainly harmful to him with that constituency. I think if you, if you sort of buy Trump's analysis that uh, people move to the suburbs in part for a more peaceful life, less stress, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think he endeared himself, if, if you believe that that's the essence of suburban living. Uh, I don't think he actually guaranteed a kind of uh, atmosphere going forward of civic peace that would allow people to conduct their daily lives without undue anxiety. In short, I think the debate was a, a good deal of a disaster for him particularly because I think it confirmed uh, most people's sense of what Trump is like and what they don't like about Trump, even if they've been Trump supporters. And so I, I, I think for the Trump campaign, uh, it's, it's been bad news. I think Republicans, Republican elected officials and Republican political consultants know that and are more anxious now than they were before the debate. I think if you're a Republican senator, running in a tightly contested re-election campaign. You wish that that debate had never happened. So this was clearly Trump's plan in advance. This wasn't like a spontaneous outburst. Clearly, he did not intend to try to win undecided voters, and certainly not suburban 
women. What was Trump's plan? Who was this aimed at, do you think? Well, you know, one of the paradoxes of Trump's presidency is that he never really has had much of a uh, outreach or grow my constituency strategy. And that's reflected in his, in his polling. He has never had uh, a 50% or higher approval rating. What he does is he goes out and uh, riles up his own base. And, you know, in part, this is a phenomenon enabled by the likes of Fox News and right-wing talk radio. They, they, they create a, a, a kind of little ecosystem, uh, and, and that's, I think, echo with and without an H, in, in that you can, uh, if you're Trump, you know, you, you can begin to think that this is, uh, this is the universe, or at least the majority opinion. And we, we have reports that uh, the people around Trump generally try to convey the sense that he's doing better than he actually is. Well, so, there's an, another possibility, which is that he's given up on winning, and now his goal is just to screw up the process, make it as chaotic as he can, and prevent the election from working so that somehow or other he might be able to stay in office afterwards. That's quite possible. That's quite possible. If he's a realist, although that still is, to put it mildly, a long shot, uh, <laughs> he, he might think that uh, simply maximizing chaos is his one hope of staying in office. If he's actually believes that uh, his, his diehard supporters really amount to an effective electoral college majority, and he can bring them out uh, by doing more of what he's been doing for the past four years, then you, we would see the same result as uh, same conduct from Trump that we see if he, if he believes that maximizing chaos is, is the way to go. So either way, you, you, you get uh, Trump unleashed, you know, on, uh, on the debate stage, which is certainly what we saw on Tuesday. Let's talk about the rest of the Republican Party a little more. You said this was a, a bad news for them, and certainly almost all Republican candidates claim to play by the rules, want to, or at least say they want to debate the issues, they have positions on the issues, and especially they accept the results of the vote. We've had some very high-level Senate Republicans distance themselves from Trump on the question of whether the candidates should both accept the result of the vote. And then there's those, those uh, very close Senate races that you mentioned. Let's talk specifically about a couple of them. How do you think Susan Collins feels, you know, a couple of days after the debate? Probably during the debate, her, she began to experience uh, intestinal and, tum and stomach difficulties. <laughs> uh, th this, was, this was about as, you know, uh, she, she needed this, like uh, the Yiddish phrase is a luchin cup, a hole in the head. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're in a state where you won election by personifying what is considered Republican moderation, this, this just blows that out of the water. Uh, I think it was a disaster for Susan Collins. But, you know, if, if we look at particular races, I mean, my God, even Lindsey Graham in South Carolina is tied with Jamie Harrison. And uh, Graham was, uh, felt the need to say, well, of course we need to repudiate white supremacy, which was the whole race and detriment of South Carolina historically, <laughs> I might add. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I think this was tremendously anxiety-provoking among a range of, of Republican senators. 
So it, it seems like uh, what philosophers call a category error to treat this as a regular debate and talk about, you know, who won, who lost, who did yeah. well on, on which issues. But I wonder what you thought of Joe Biden's performance. It's very hard to, you know, to stand next to somebody who is yelling at you for an hour and a half. I mean, uh, I think probably many listeners just fled from the room and Joe Biden had to stand there for an hour and a half. How do you think he did? Well, you know, I'm inclined to credit both Biden and Chris Wallace uh, a, a little more, with a, a more more charity and a little more highly perhaps than some of their critics, because I don't think anyone sta- having to deal with Trump over that 90 minutes could really have sustained a kind of state of, of reasonable normality. So Wallace interjects. Did he interject enough? Well, you know, no one had ever interjected like that before as a moderator. So too with Biden. I mean, you know, he was uh, uh, kerfuffled on a number of occasions by the uh, relentless bullshit that uh, uh, Trump was uh, hurling at him. But, you know, I thought at the end of the day, he did fairly well. And he directly addressed the uh, camera and the audience about their concerns, which is something Trump never did. So while it was not a stellar performance and, and, you know, there were moments there where he not only seemed nonplussed as anyone would be, but nonplussed as a senior citizen uh, would be even perhaps a little more, speaking as someone who, while a good deal younger than uh, Biden, is still in that category. You know, I, I, I think he, he came out basically ahead. And that's what I think most of the polling data show about people's reaction to the debate. Biden came, you know, prepared to discuss the issues that are usually discussed in a debate. And of course, Trump doesn't really have positions on most of these issues, or at least not that can be spoken in public. So it does make for a kind of a, an imbalance, which was part of Trump's rationale for doing what he did. I especially like the idea that the fires are cause our problem of forest management rather than uh, climate change. We certainly, we're not feeling that way in California uh, uh, this month. No, uh, I, I think that's clear. And, and certainly the climate crisis is, a, is, a, is an issue on which the differences between Biden and Trump and uh, science and Trump are night and day. So, yeah. It's hard to find people uh, today who would like to go through this all again in couple of weeks, but the New York Times editorial on Wednesday argued that everybody should watch the next two debates, even if they're exactly the same format, to get the unbearable experience of having Donald Trump as president. What do you think? Well, I've already suggested in my piece I wrote right after the debate that went up on the Prospect website, www.prospect.org, that if uh, I were Mike Bloomberg, I would offer uh, cash rewards to any swing voters to watch the subsequent debates because this will drive them more into Biden's camp. And having made that suggestion, it occurred to me that the, the counterproposal, if I were Sheldon Adelson, who gives a ton of money to the Republicans, uh, Adelson uh, should offer a, a, a lot of money to swing voters not to watch the subsequent <laughs> debates, essentially on the same premise that Bloomberg would do it uh, uh, to watch them. So, I mean, that, you know, I mean, I, look, I'm a journalist. I've covered debates since forever. And, uh, you know, I get paid to do this modestly. Uh, I, I'm not sure why anyone would actually want to watch 
uh, after what we've just seen, the subsequent debates. So there is now this discussion going on about what is to be done about making these debates work more the way they are supposed to. Clearly, this is not Trump's goal. There is this commission that historically is in charge of setting the format, and they've been scratching their heads and furrowing their brows over this. Where do we stand on the commission and their progress? Well, there was a story in the Thursday New York Times that, you know, they had gotten a lot of uh, suggestion that they give the moderator the power to turn off uh, uh, someone's, uh, one of the candidates' mics, one of his microphones, if uh, he violates the rules of the debate. The New York Times story on this said that, well, there were some difficulties doing that uh, in television, although my uh, colleague at the uh, American, Pro American Prospect, David Dayen, who worked in television for 20 years, uh, pointed out in, in like, you know, language directed to be understood by third graders, <laughs> that really this is a very common thing to do. But, you know, I, I'm working on a piece suggesting that if, in fact, uh, for some mysterious reason, the uh, commission concludes that they don't have the power uh, or the, the gumption uh, to turn off the mics, that there are other, uh, other resolutions. You know, if, if, if you violate, uh, if the moderator sees you violating this, let's say, two times, there is the quicksand solution in which the candidate slowly sinks beneath the level of his podium. Three times we, we go beyond the, uh, the quicksand to a trap door. Uh, you suddenly disappear from the stage. And of course, the final uh, version of this, which I called the Donald Giovanni uh, version, uh, as in Don Giovanni, is that you not only go through the trap door, but end up in the fires of hell. So uh, I'm, I'm still working on this, but that's sort of where my thought process is going if the debate commission has trouble simply dealing with microphones. And of course, some people have suggested that Trump is not, not going to accept any other format, and then he may refuse to participate in a, in a proposed change. Uh, do you think that's possible? Uh, no, I mean, I think Trump will continue to show up uh, no matter what. Uh, if, if the commission orders both candidates to show up wearing tutus, I think Trump will, <laughs> okay. will show up. But, uh, you know, uh, we, we shall see. The one thing that Biden didn't do much with and hasn't been doing a lot with in, on the campaign trail is the, the astounding work the New York Times did on Trump's taxes. This is something we've been after for four years, and God bless them, they finally got hold of his tax returns, and they are pretty much what we expected, but they've done a beautiful job of writing it up and explaining it and make it, making it into a series of stories about how Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the, the first year that he was uh, president, and he's paid a lot more to foreign governments. Of course, he's paid a lot more to Stormy Daniels than he paid to the United States government uh, uh, in Internal Revenue Service. Um, you know, we historians have been told that for when Nixon's tax shenanigans were exposed late in the Watergate crisis, he had taken a charitable deduction for the donation of his papers to the National Archives, which really presidents aren't supposed to do, and this reduced his tax bill tremendously for that year. We are told that that was more significant than the Watergate revelations of breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee and then covering it up, that the tax 
shenanigans were more important in, in losing Nixon his last bit of support than Watergate was. So seems to me there's a case to be made that this is a should be a tremendous issue. Uh, what's your sense of the significance of the New York Times stories on taxes and the way it's being processed in the campaign? Well, I, I think Biden is bringing it up. I mean, the, the, you know, there are a few handles that are easy to grasp. The $750 payments for 2016 and 2017, that's easy to understand. The, the $70,000 uh, write-off for his hairstyling, uh, I think, <laughs> is, is, is a, a pretty compelling way to go. You know, I mean, I, th th there's a certain level of complexity here that is daunting in trying to put this on a bumper sticker. But I think seven, 750 bucks and 70,000 bucks for your barber uh, paid for by the government is simple enough. And Biden has alluded to it, and I think he will continue to allude to it. I would assume that the Biden campaign is polling on this, if it hasn't probably already has polled on this, and that that will guide them uh, as he goes forward. Republicans needed this debate like a hole in the head. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. And always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about right-wing women. We've never forgotten that in 2016, exit polls showed that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. It's still a puzzling and frightening statistic. If you want to know where the political organizing of right-wing women in America began, you have to take a look at Phyllis Schlafly and the fight she organized to block the Equal Rights Amendment in 1970. She's the subject of a nine-part mini-series on the FX channel on Hulu. It's called Mrs. America, and it stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. Ella Taylor has been watching. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Weekly, the New York Times, and at NPR.org. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. A pleasure to be here. Kate Blanchett is such a fabulous actress, so charismatic. Some of the critics thought she made Phyllis Schlafly too sympathetic. I wonder if that's the way you felt. Yes, and, and I gather that those same critics also felt that uh, Tracy Ullman's performance as um, Betty Friedan, uh, author of The Feminine Mystique, <clears throat> was too unlikable. And uh, it, this does not impress me as a, as a valid form of criticism, not just specifically, but generally, because as the great poet said, we all contain multitudes, and I'm much more interested in the multitudes than in a one-dimensional um, portrayal. Having said that, um, Phyllis Schlafly was a real piece of work. <laughs> she uh, had, I, I can't remember, it was six or seven children. That doesn't make her a piece of work. But the way she treated some of them, in particular one son who, was, who at this point is clearly emerging as gay, um, and uh, uh, her daughter was 
less than kind and certainly less than maternal because they didn't fit in with her aggressively anti-homosexual, her son didn't fit in with her aggressively anti-homosexual views. Um, She had considerable political ambitions. I think um, the series shows very well that um, they were rather thwarted earlier on and she decided that she would do better by um, essentially forming her own women's movement. Um, There are two very nice performances by Sarah Paulson who plays her very meek sidekick. Um, I assume things are going to change, otherwise they wouldn't have cast Sarah Paulson. And the other one um, is the very, very good actress, um, Melanie Linsky, who people may remember from as far back as Heavenly Creatures as the daughter who helped murder her own mother. Um, There's also all kinds of um, wonderful uh, side performances, in particular, um, Uzo Adebo, who plays Shirley Chisholm, is just really wonderful. Uh, Ro- uh, Gloria Steinem is played by Rose, the Australian actress uh, Rose Byrne, who more often, more typically does comedy, um, but she's very, very good. She has that kind of cool composure that Gloria Steinem had, but she plays her. But the real star, uh, in my opinion, of the series is Margot Martindale, who plays the ineffable Bella Abzug, who is just loads of fun, and the the series really exploits just how much loads of fun she was. One of the things that the series is very good at, apart from showing just how awful Phyllis Schlafly could be, and also how vulnerable, um, is that it is it does not shrink from showing the divisions between among within the w- the women's movement, and I think that's a big plus. Um, there's no point in presenting the 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 movement as a monolithic movement. Uh, Gloria Steinem certainly was um, a very unifying force. I think that was her chief role in in many ways. That her recognition that. Uh, needed to include uh, black women, Latina women, native women, uh, and the gay community as well. And that she was willing, she was a listener and an observer because she started life um, as a journalist. I think that the movie gives Phyllis Schlafly her due in the sense that it presents her as a, a rather complete character the scripts are very strong. They they really get inside the character uh, instead of just talking ideology to the audience. Um, and the, if you're into procedurals of political chicanery, both male and female, this is the series for you because it really gets down and dirty in all the gritty detail of the formation, the snafus, the ups and downs, the male hostility. Betty Friedan is quite skillfully played and very well written as uh, a person who was widely known to be quite impossible. (laughs) Um, I personally have witnessed uh, when she was alive um, her being extremely rude to hotel staff both male and female, um, some occasion of, of, uh, that I attended of women in film here in Los Angeles. On the other hand, the series really gives her her due um, as a great fighter uh, and uh, a very savvy strategist. So you might think a nine-part series on the ERA fight, that's too much. But the way this has been organized, I thought was wonderful, which is that 
each of these subsequent episodes focuses on one of the leaders of the feminist movement. And as you say, they represent very different positions. They have very different life stories. This is Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, you've talked about Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm, a couple of others, and their debates over the, the classic issues of, of the, you know, of the left, pragmatism versus revolution, compromise versus purity are given full airing. And I think this is also kind of a message movie, which is never underestimate your enemies. The story of how underestimating her was a terrible mistake is what's told in Mrs. America. It yeah. stars Kate Blanchett. It's on the FX channel on Hulu. And there's another related show, which is about Gloria Steinem. It's called The Glorias, and it stars Julianne Moore and three other people playing Gloria Steinem at different stages of her life. It's based on her 2015 memoir, My Life on the Road. What did you think of the, the uh, TV version of this? I didn't think that much of it. I have not read my life on the road to my great shame. Um, but I think that the director, the writer-director, Julie Taymor, who wrote the movie with Sarah Rule, and I'll come to that, um, she obviously didn't want to miss any of the book because the movie is 139 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> And very plodding at that. Um, it's not a terrible movie. I wasn't bored. Um, but uh, all the strengths of Mrs. America are missing here, which is that it plods along assiduously through her life. It announces itself as a road movie, um, you know, and draws a very direct connection between um, young Gloria's adoration for her father, who was an itinerant wannabe impresario, who is a very Dickensian figure in the, in the movie. He's very Micawberish, you know, they, he'll, he'll solve everything tomorrow, but in the meantime, uh, we're going to have fun. Um, he's very nicely played by Timothy Hutton and her mother, who um, a former writer and now a thwarted writer because of their life on the road, um, who becomes increasingly dep depressive and eventually mentally ill, beautifully played by Enid Graham. So it was a very complicated childhood. Um, uh, to the movie's credit, it doesn't present it all as terrible, although a lot of it was, she had a lot of responsibility for her mother quite uh, earlier on. Uh, but her mother was her champion later on. And then uh, as a young woman, she's played by the gifted young Swedish actress, Alicia, Alicia Vikander. And uh, she's pretty good, uh, as is Julianne Moore, who plays the more mature Gloria. I have to say that Julianne Moore looks so much like Gloria Steinem. It's amazing. Yes, she does look like her. Um, to me, it was kind of a little interesting case of countercasting because Julianne Moore is known for 
playing hysterics. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have ever seen the extremely funny mashup of uh, Julianne Moore crying in various roles, but if you dial it up, it is very funny indeed. I don't mean that against her. She's a marvelous actress and actually much more versatile than the hole she got stuck in playing um, hysterical women. And here she's playing a woman of great reserve um, who didn't show her feelings uh, easily. And she's very good, but, but nobody has very much to work with um, by way of a script here. Even once the movie gets into its really interesting part, which is of course uh, the formation of, of uh, second wave feminism and um, the, the ERA. So it has some similar material to uh, the movie we discussed before. I got quite excited when I saw, before I saw it, to see that uh, Bette Midler was going to play Bella Abzug, but because she has little to work with by way of a script, um, it's not a very, it's really quite a disappointing and somewhat lackluster performance. She's playing her as a kind of clown, which is not what Bella Abzug was about at all. Right. Certainly <laughs> a heroine of mine in, in, for many reasons. Um, one of them being that she was one of the few Jewish um, women at the head of that movement at that time. It's a different story now. Has an enormous cast. It plods along through, uh, back and forth, through older um, Gloria to younger Gloria. It's often quite mawkish. Um, there's one awful scene where... Um, uh, older Julia actually puts her head on the shoulder of little Gloria. Oh dear. Um, yes, it was it just that's the kind of thing that crops up very, very often. I don't know if it's in the book. Uh, and then suddenly, Julie Tamor will make this sideways lurch into fantasy sequences <laughs> in which, you know, hostile or oversexed male interviewers are incorporated into scenes from The Wizard of Oz, and it, it just doesn't work at all. And then it goes back into this solid, you know, realist thing. The main problem um, is that Gloria Steinem emerges as a rather anodyne figure. She is both reserved She's mouthy in a kind of lackluster way, but she's endlessly compassionate uh, and self-deprecating. And she's, she's portrayed as a kind of den mother to the women's movement, which I think is, does not do her justice. And in fact, what it does inadvertently is give much more prominence to uh, some of the other characters, in particular, a very good performance from Lorraine Toussaint, who plays Flo Kennedy, the lesbian civil rights uh, lawyer who goes on the road with her and is a, a great personality. That really is worth seeing. The problem is that the script, the characters, the script does not get inside the characters in all their complexity as it does in Mrs. America. The script talks to the audience, not the characters talking to each other. So they're often declaiming what's happening in the ERA at the moment or who's feuding with whom and so on. But it's quite good on um, Steinem's role as a, uh, an avatar of, of in inclusivity. I think that the length of the film signals that Tamor wants to be the definitive film on Gloria Steinem. Um, and there is a lovely sequence at the end of the movie where we see the real Gloria Steinem 
I love films where we see the real person at the end. Uh, maybe that's <laughs> sentimentalist in, in me. And she's speaking to a huge crowd at, at age 80. Um, and uh, I cried, I must say. I don't think it is by any means the definitive film on her. If anything, uh, she gets much more lively treatment in, in Mrs. America. Our time is flying here. Do you have one more to recommend to us? I do. It's been playing for a few weeks now. It's a documentary about voter suppression called uh, All In, The Fight for Democracy. And it tells the history of uh, voter suppression from uh, its beginnings in the 18th century um, up to the present day where it persists in very different form. And it does that by threading the history very interestingly through Stacey Abrams' uh, run for governor of Georgia. We all know how that ended (laughs) in uh, Brian Kemp's shenanigans of uh, voter suppression. And it's very successful. It's directed by Liz Garbus and uh, Lisa Cortez. The stuff about uh, the background of Stacey Abrams, which I've always wanted to know, um, is really good to know. She came from a, um, an educated family that emphasized service to others. She was the valedictorian of her class and then got denied entry to the governor's mansion because the guy at the, uh, at the front door thought it was a mistake that a black person could have been the valedictorian. So obviously that um, radicalized her in uh, in and of itself, and then it goes through her political history, which is a little bit you know better known, and finally up to her running for governor. She's an enormously articulate woman. I didn't know this history, uh, certainly the early history at all, because I went to a girls' high school in England, and their history was what flowers went into the gardens of the. Tudors and Stuarts. So I was very uncluding. So I learned an enormous amount from this, that right from the time that uh, voter suppression began, when it was restricted to white property owning males, and I'm sure, John, that you've got a lot to add to this, so that it meant that uh, 6% of the the population of the United States was eligible to vote through Reconstruction um, when, uh, you know, in the 15th Amendment, when Included uh, men and then finally women through retrenchment in the in the Jim Crow period, but particularly and depressingly uh, up to today, when the methods of voter suppression are not, you know, by stamping on people's heads or lynching them so much as uh, eliminating them from the voter rolls, ad- administering um, bogus lib- literacy tests. Uh, not allowing uh, felons to to vote and um, and other such uh, nefarious methods. That's a very depressing part of it, and it's really what kept Stacey Abrams from winning. Uh, in the end, she even after a recount that showed that twenty five thousand votes went uncounted, she lost by a hair. And her estimate is, and the filmmaker's estimate is that one point four million people were purged from the roles. All this is extraordinarily pertinent for out, um, the coming weeks. All in.
documentary featuring the wonderful Stacey Abrams is on Amazon Prime. We've also talked here about Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. That's a nine-part miniseries on Hulu. And finally, we talked about The Glorias starring Julianne Moore as Gloria Steinem. That's also on Prime Video. Ella Taylor, thanks once again for being our guide to Virus Time TV. Thank you for having me, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.